You are listening to the Grace Covenant Church Audio Podcast. We are in the series Culture Shock, and we're talking about a lot of hot topics that we're having to deal with in our culture today. It may be about politics, it may be about abortion, it may be about a number of things, uh, and we're going to cover that over the next few weeks. But this week, we're going to be talking about the issue of homosexuality. And then, so if you have uh, parents, if you have children in here, want to make you aware that we're going to be talking about this. It'll be probably around PG-13 or so. Uh, but I think that, you know, we definitely want to try to uh, address this and provide a context uh, for us to know how to respond to this issue in our culture today as Grace Covenant Church. And if you're watching online, I want to um, welcome you as well, wherever you are in the world. We're grateful you're able to tune in. But if you've just been looking and, I mean, just look at the landscape over the past five years or so of how things have changed on this issue specifically. Just within the past year, we've had the Supreme Court render a decision that will now pave the way to make it possible to make same-sex marriage a federal law. That we have the HB2 bill that we're dealing with here in North Carolina. Mississippi also has something very similar that they're dealing with in regards to the transgender rights and bathrooms and such. And this is just bringing up issues regarding the LGBT community as well. And then this past week, I'm not sure how many of you follow this type of thing, but uh, Trey Pearson of the Christian band Everyday Sunday has come out and identifying as a gay Christian. And so now he joins the ranks of Ray Boltz and Jennifer Knapp, who have also come out and identified as gay Christian artists. And so the landscape is changing. Theology, Theology is being redefined. There's now a theology not only just, you know, within our culture, but within many denominations saying that God ordains and he blesses same-sex unions. God is perfectly all right with same-sex behavior. In fact, not only does he bless it, he celebrates it. And this is something that where it's continuing to permeate our culture. Now, for the record, before I begin on this teaching, I will state what our position is here at Grace Covenant, and I will do so very graciously. We here at Grace Covenant believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that all sexual activity is to happen within the context of marriage. And so that is our position, but I say that with love and I say that with grace, because we believe that is the fullest celebration of our sexuality, the fullest celebration of God's creation as man and woman. And that is what we adhere to. However, there are some things that I do want to talk about that I think will be quite challenging for us as a whole. You know, one of the things, if we're going to address this issue, we're going to have to talk about the issue of repentance. But I'm not talking about repentance necessarily on the part of the LGBT community. I'm talking about repentance on the church. That we as a whole need to repent of our own biblical and moral compromise. How does this look when we as a church are standing and lecturing and talking about how you need to uphold a certain moral code when we ourselves are the biggest violators? If you look, there is, it seems as though there's not a week or a month that doesn't pass where some evangelical leader, some prominent leader within the Christian church has had some kind of moral failure, financial failure. There's been some kind of compromise. We see scandal. We see lawsuits. We see all of this activity. And the world looks at this and with an eye roll and going, really? You're going to talk to me about my life? You don't even have yours in order. What, so you obviously don't cherish this moral code. 
you want to talk about biblical sexuality? Well, what does, you know, how many, how many people within your church walls are sleeping with other people and they're not married? What does the pornography rates look like? What do the adultery rates look like? And yet you're going to lecture me on my lifestyle? You're going to lecture me on what my life looks like? We've lost all ability. We've we kind of lost any kind of moral authority. We, we, we've gained a general distrust by the populace. That unfortunately, the, the, the reputation of the church within our culture and our society today is not necessarily, in some ways, not that good. Because we've kind of blown it. We have to repent of our own harsh judgment and assumptions. That we need to start with going, okay, what are our attitudes? What, what, what's the kind of language that I use to refer to gay and lesbian friends and such? I mean, you know, believe me, I mean, terms like queer and fag and those types of things, those are not necessarily, you know, terms of endearment. And when you hear that and when somebody says something like that and refers to them in that way, you don't even realize who's beside you. You don't even realize that there may be some teenager that's struggling with it and that may be not knowing what to do about it and wants to talk desperately to somebody about it, but they hear them use some kind of derogatory language or some kind of phrase or something like that, and they realize, you know what, this is not a safe place. I'm not going to talk to you about this. In fact, maybe somebody else will talk to me about it. I heard a story where there was a young man that was dealing with that very th- thing, didn't know who to go to and to talk to about these feelings that he was having and this struggle. And so what he did, he called up a local gay bar and said, hey, is there somebody I can talk to about kind of what I'm dealing with there? And they said, yeah, sure, come on. And unfortunately went there in that situation, uh, wound up be- being sexually violated by the person that he called up and asked for help. And I'm not saying that that happens and that if you, if you do that, and I'm not putting that on the gay community or anything like that. I'm not trying to make a stereotype or generalization. That was an unfortunate incident. But that's what happens when we don't provide an opportunity and a voice in the church, and we respond with those kind of harsh judgments and such. You know, I'm a big fan of social media. I love social media. I have a Facebook account. I have an Instagram, a Twitter, whatever. I do nothing with it, but I'm a big fan of it. <clears throat> And so, you know, I see that, but it's just, it's like now we just have this ability to get everybody's opinion in real time. And some of the stuff that, quite frankly, that I see posted on Facebook walls is absolutely deplorable. So somebody that was like, you know, referring to the LGBT community, called them a bunch of kooks. And at the end of their video said that, well, we all just need to work better at loving each other and being, you know, being more loving to everyone. I went, what's the title of this podcast? Adventures in Missing the Point? (laughs) Really? And we have that kind of thing going on and using this language because we're taking a stand for truth. We're taking a stand for justice. I'm carrying the sword of truth and Jesus has entrusted it to me and I've got to proclaim my moral agenda. And the thing is, is that, yes, God has given, the word of God is a sword of truth, but a lot of us are using it like a machete. A sword of truth is meant to be almost surgical in nature. You have to have a skill with it. You go in and you know exactly where to hit, how to hit, etc. A machete is just to clear any path and anything that's in its way. And so we bring out our scriptures out of context. We bring all this stuff out and we just hack away at anybody in our path because we're taking a stand for righteousness. Yet we don't seem to take a stand for it in our own lives. 
In the 1980s, we missed a prime opportunity as a church. We dropped the ball majorly. When the AIDS crisis broke out, what the church did was talk about the gay cancer and God's judgment that was coming upon the gay community and that it was going to be a great celebration when this disease finally wipes everyone out. And then we see people that died gruesome, suffering deaths as a result of this disease. And we celebrated it. We said, good riddance. That's what you deserve. Provided no relief. Didn't even think about going to the hospices or the hospitals to provide the relief. Now, I'm not saying everyone. There were some churches I know that did respond well. But as a general rule, no. Because we had our own prejudices that were defining our actions and, our, and, our, and the way that we responded to it. We had leaders coming out and pronouncing it as you know, the wrath of God upon the gay community. You know, we vilified and we demonized the gay community. You know what? You don't want to know why this younger generation doesn't really want to hear what we have to say about this issue? It's because we demonized and we vilified these people. And they've gone out, and as people have come, become more comfortable and come out, and it's more, you know, uh, it's more in the culture, it's more visible and such, and the, the friends are readily identifying as gay and having no problem with it, and they're making friends with these people and realizing they actually enjoy being around them, and they're actually kind of nice people, and they're, they're pleasant, and they actually become, can become good friends. And they look at us and go, well, you lied to me. You told me that this, this person was like a demon. This person was evil. And you lied to me. I don't trust you anymore. I'm going to listen to them. Because they actually seem to demonstrate what love's about. We do that. We lose our voice. But that's the way we, as a church, respond. With something we don't understand that we're uncomfortable with, the easiest thing to do is to exaggerate it and to blow it up into something that's just nasty and disgusting and then put it aside without realizing that there are people... There are people behind those picket signs. There are people on the other side of the fence. There are people involved. In 1984, an evangelical leader referred to the Metropolitan Community Church. Now what that is, is that in the uh, 70s and 80s, the Metropolitan Community Church was kind of birthed out of the gay community. And it basically embraces a gay theology saying that God blesses same-sex unions. He blesses same-sex behavior. He is perfectly all right with that. And therefore we, were, we will ordain our own ministers and create our own denomination. And basically it was a kind of a gay-defined denomination that began. And so what this evangelical leader, he said this about them. He said, they're brute beast, a vile and a satanic system that will one day be utterly annihilated and there will be a celebration in heaven. This isn't somebody with a blog. This was a prominent evangelical leader that stepped out and said this. Now, I'm not saying that we don't call out something that's wrong, especially if there's heresy involved, especially if there's wrong theology. We, we have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to stand here and say, no, this teaching is false. Don't believe it. However, to, but to go on the attack of the person and such gets us nowhere. In the 9-11 attacks, there were two prominent evangelical leaders that got on national television and inferred that the gay community was partially responsible for the terrorist attacks. And we wonder why we have no voice. We wonder why we don't have any kind of influence. We wonder why we're kind of getting this, this almost violent kickback. 
And we're finding that some of our freedoms are t- you know, seemingly being taken away and such. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that I believe in a large part we're reaping what we've sown. I think that we have a very militant and very angry uh, gay community uh, <clears throat> or gay movement because of the fact of the matter is that we're on the other side of what they received from us. We have to acknowledge that. Now, I do not stereotype and everything. You know, when, whenever you see, whenever you think of the gay community, I want you to get this out of your head. The gay pride parades, the television, the constitute, the flamboyancy, all that kind of stuff. That is a small subset. And that does not represent everyone as a whole, just as the people that get on TV and claim to represent us, we're kind of going, you know what, I don't know that person. <laughs> that, yeah, I have nothing to do with that. So it's, it goes both ways. So let's not make a stereotype or generalization about it. But somebody may say, well, you know what, Pastor Jeff, there's, um, Scripture calls this an abomination. You're right. In Leviticus, it calls it an abomination. It says, a man that lies with a man is a woman um, has committed an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Absolutely. It also talks about a number of other abominations and uses that word abomination throughout Scripture. The abominations such as having haughty eyes, uh, lying, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that run to evil, false witness who breathes lies, sowing discord among the brothers, justifying the wicked and condemning the just, a crooked heart, using unequal weights and measures, and everyone who is proud in heart. Did I miss anybody? I think we pretty much covered the gamut in this room. And outside the blood of Christ, we are all, we are all an abomination. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we've been redeemed. Isn't that the message that we want to get through? Isn't that what we want them, everyone to experience? So we need to repent of the harsh judgments and such, and then also our lack of understanding and compassion. The thing about this particular thing, the way it's made kind of the worst of all sins, and by the way, that's, you know, sin has different consequences. If I go into a, you know, a department store or go into a store and I steal a pen and I don't get caught, I've still sinned, but I haven't necessarily reaped the consequence, but the consequence looks different than if I go out and commit adultery on my wife. It's still the sin. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Sin is sin, but sin will have different consequences. And sexual sin definitely has some of the most significant and most uh, devastating consequences of all. Because it doesn't only affect the person, it affects the family, it affects the church as a whole. It ripples on and on and on and on. And that's why sexual sin is addressed and talked about so much throughout the Bible, because it does have devastating consequences. But the fact of the matter is sin is sin, and the blood of Christ had to be shed for all sin to be covered and washed away. So we have to start from that point. But here's what we need to understand. I want you to get your kind of I want you to I want to unpack this a little bit, but get your arms around this. We have to understand a few terms and a, a few concepts. The first is that someone who is attracted to the same sex, we call that same sex attraction. Whoever is attracted to the same sex, that in itself is not sin. Okay? If you are tempted toward an erotic inclination toward the same sex, that in itself is not sin. When you entertain that and when you engage in lust, of course that is sin. But it is a temptation. And as we all know that if we, were all, if we all define temptation as all sin, then oh my goodness, we would never, <laughs> we would never get anywhere. 
The fact of the matter is, is that we're all tempted by something. Everybody has a spot of weakness. Everybody has something they have a kind of a proclivity to and a weakness in their area and that they're tempted in that area. The temptation is there. It's prominent. But the thing is, is that it's not necessarily a sin until you begin to entertain or engage in it. So you have the same sex attraction. Next, you have the behavior. The behavior is when you actually engage in sexual relations with members of the same sex. So why is that important? Look at it this way. For the 13-year-old that's beginning to experience this and having questions about this, the fact is, is going told that, okay, I can't control this. This is involuntary. I didn't ask for this because nobody ever wakes up one day and goes, you know what? I think it would be a great idea to be gay. I think I will start now. There's no switch. This doesn't happen. Nobody asks for that. Nobody asks to feel that way. But for someone that's beginning to deal with that or that awareness is beginning to happen and it begins to kick in around puberty and such, then what happens is that uh, they begin to associate the fact they're going, well, I'm sinning, therefore I'm a bad person, and the shame begins to come on them. Rather than helping them distinguish between the two and saying, no, no, no. The temptation, we understand it's not your fault. That's not what you're asking for. We want to help you work through that. We want to help you live a righteous and holy life. It's only when you engage, begin to entertain it, go into a lustful thought life or a pattern, or you begin to actually uh, engage in a sexual acts with someone else is that when it becomes the sinful pattern. But you, I want you to understand that so you don't go into this shame spiral. And then finally, we have the identity. And it's very important that if somebody says that I'm attracted to members of the same sex, the last thing you want to do is go, oh, you're gay. Because with that identity and with that label comes all the sociopolitical beliefs, comes all of the kind of the culture terms, everything that's associated with that, you're beginning, you're taking that on for yourself. It is the same, you know, it says that there's power in a name. Whenever you give a name to somebody, you give them something to live up to. And so when you put that label, when you put that on someone, so especially with teenagers and such, as they're trying to discover and they're trying to work this through, that we want to be very careful that we don't automatically begin to put labels upon them. Because if we tell them that, and they'll begin to believe that. And they'll begin to embrace that and to walk into it as an identity. And everything that comes with that. We want to distinguish between the attractions, the behavior, and the identity, and it, and it progresses. And what we as a church is want to be able to know where people are at what point so we can effectively minister to them wherever they are in that progression. So you have the attraction, you have the behavior, and you have the orientation and identity. So we want to respond in this way with a grace and truth perspective. First of all, we want to respond with a perspective of truth. And I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to look at in the verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> People love to take this first part, the first couple of verses that says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we stop there. But the next verse says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That sentence right there, and such were some of you, means everything. 
Because if you think, I know everybody thinks that we are living in a more sexualized culture than we ever have in the history of man. I ask you, have you read anything about Greco-Roman culture? Have you been to a museum? You look at that and realize that, no, they were all about celebrating sexualization. Homosexuality was actually celebrated and actually very open and engaged in and such. I mean, look at Paul's letter to the Corinthian. He's kind of going, what are you doing? What do you mean you're sleeping with a father's mother? What, 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 what are you guys doing over there? So we had that, but in the first century church, Paul is saying, but because of the power of God and because they made a choice to live according to what Scripture has defined, they are no longer those things. They are no longer living in that way. And yet society tells us that if you are, if you have these inclinations, if you have this orientation, you have no choice but to move forward and to act on it. And that is not what Scripture says. There's talk about a gay gene and somehow that this is biologically determined. There has been no study that has been able to be replicated to support evidence either way. The jury is still out. There could be a possibility that there could be, could some, be some kind of biological determinant or a contributor to this. But I ask you, does that legitimize? Does that actually make it? Uh, then therefore, if it's biologically determined, then it's okay? No, because as a result of the fall, a number of things have gone wrong. And people have to understand that we are not defined by our biology, but we are defined by Scripture. That is how we live our life. So regardless of what you know, genetics will determine or what the jury may come out in the future or whatever, the church has to rest solid on the fact of going, yes, that may be the case, but the power of God has the ability to come over everything, including biology. The church must be a voice of truth in the culture. I do believe that we have a responsibility as citizens of this country to step up and to speak about the things that are of concern to us. And I have just as much right to vote according to my beliefs and according to what it is that I hold of value as anyone else. But how I do it makes all the difference. Because quite frankly, I will say this, of some of the things I heard regarding the HB2 demonstrations in downtown Charlotte, how some of the people demonstrated and protested against that, against the gay community, I find absolutely appalling and shameful. That when I'm talking to someone that I used to work with, her name was, <clears throat> well, um, someone that I used to work with, and she uh, was worked at a law firm in San Francisco. And she was a lesbian at that time, and she was talking about how there was this believer in her workplace, and uh, she really despised him simply because he was a Christian. She knew what he believed, what he stood for, and she absolutely despised him. Despised him to the point to where she was very consciously trying to get him fired, plying against him, and backstabbing him. But what this guy would do is that every day, or, or pretty regularly, would come and put their favorite coffee drink down and say, I, I thought you would like that. And just move on. And she's kind of going, what is with this dude? And eventually kind of began to just open up conversation. She said, began asking, okay, why are you doing this? And talking. And just a natural progression. Didn't immediately sit down and pull out the Leviticus scripture and said, you need to get saved right now. You know, pursued a national relationship with her. To where she came to know the Lord. Wind up leaving lesbianism. And eventually to the point to where she was able to em embrace marriage uh, with a man to have a family. 
But what she would say is that she would see the people, she would see the Christians, she would see the church on the other side of the picket lines and see how they talked about the issue and see how they represented it and said, you know what, if accepting Christ means that I have to spend eternity with you, no thank you. I'll be completely happy wherever it is that you say I'm going to go. But I don't want you as my next door neighbor for all of eternity. And that's what happens. You know, as we're railing against some of these issues and as we're proclaiming what it is that we believe and what we want to hold true, I want to ask you, how many of us have actually talked to somebody that's on on the other side? That's in the gay community. Some of the stories that you would find would be absolutely appalling. One young man I uh, remember uh, talking with and ministering to for a while, uh, was gay, felt the same-sex attraction and such, but talked about how um, his mother would give him high doses of Tylenol before his dad got home so he wouldn't feel the beatings as bad. Had a raging meth addiction. He would go and disappear for three, four days and not come back. And unfortunately, the last um, binge that he went on and disappeared, I never heard from him again. There's stories like that all over the place. Stories of how, you know, one, one young lady that I know of that uh, left lesbianism, les- lesbianism, and she uh, got involved in the church, and she, uh, you know, was kind of growing and maturing in her faith, and then one night she went over to her youth pastor's house and, uh, because he asked her to come over to talk about something, and then next thing you know, she had been raped by her youth pastor. And here she'd gone to the church for help and for safety. You know, hearing stories like that, going, take the time to hear what the other person has dealt with, where they've come from. And I'm not saying every person has some kind of horrific story like that, by no means. Because it's not true of people, it's not true of heterosexuals or whatever. But are you taking time to hear the heart of the other person on on, on, on the other side of these issues? You know, Martin Luther King says that the church must be reminded that it is neither the master of the state nor the servant of the state. Rather, it is the conscience of the state. It's not the master, it's not the servant, but we are the conscience of the state. And we do have a responsibility to step up and say, wait a minute, this is going to lead to no good. It's going to lead us down a bad path. I want to step up and say, put on the brakes. Or either we need to move in this direction. But the manner in which you do it makes all the difference. You know, one of the, um, I was, um, <clears throat> for a season of my ministry, I was uh, helped to oversee a national network of ministries that uh, dealt with relational sexual brokenness issues. So I had the opportunity to travel across the country and speak at various churches and then very briefly was able to um, speak to some public policy issues and getting involved in that. And one of the things that I noticed was that um, when it came, when something was tied to a political agenda, when there was a public policy issue against the gay uh, community, that millions of dollars would flood in. There was no problem getting that type of stuff resourced. But then I would talk to the directors that I would help oversee that were actually trying to provide ministry to family members of gay and lesbians and to those that were struggling with the issues, and they could barely make their car payments. And yet their schedules were absolutely off the chart because of the need. 
And so what does that say about us as a church? When we're spending millions to defeat them, but we're spending hardly anything to minister to them. We have an imbalance. When a uh, church in San Diego was at, that during the 2008 recession, when that kicked in, the Hillcrest community, which is a gay community in the San Diego area, what this church did was that they basically put in a care center in that neighborhood to provide food, clothing, um, job uh, coaching assistance, whatever was needed to help that community through that time. Know of another person that he's a pastor and that he goes uh, he's, goes to the Castro District in San Francisco. And what he does, he goes into the coffee shop and he starts to have conversations and gets to know people and just get involved in their lives. He doesn't go in with a track. He doesn't go in and basically, you know, to, what is it about us that when we encounter somebody uh, from the gay community or somebody that we know that is uh, gay or lesbian, that the first thing we need to know this is kind of how it st- starts off. Oh, you are, you're, oh, you're gay. Okay. Well, I'm a Christian and I believe that what you're doing is wrong and that, you know, you really need to correct your life and repent and go, you know, get right with God. And I want to help you do that. Want to go out for coffee? Why don't you just get to know them and don't lead off with a lecture and don't feel that you've got to get them saved right away. Don't feel that you've got to, you know, fix the issue right away. Because the gay community is not an issue to be solved. There are people to be loved. And until we get that, we're never going to have the impact and we're never going to be able to reach them with the gospel of Christ. We have to have an understanding of what love is because our culture has defined love as some kind of sentimental thing, a sentimental emotion, or either it's been eroticized But I love the way that John Piper defines love, and he says this. He says, love is not a delight in what a person is, but a deeply felt commitment to helping him be what he ought to be. Not a delight in who he is, but a commitment to helping him be what he ought to be. That's exactly what Christ did for us. He didn't just delight in us. He sacrificed himself so that we could become all that we knew that we could become. And so when you love your neighbor as yourself, do you understand what that means? Do you understand just how much you love yourself? How you take care of yourself? How you make yourself priority? How all of this is, you know, you've, you know we love ourselves quite a bit because we focus a lot on ourselves. And Scripture tells us we have to love our neighbor just as much in that same way. I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting to me. And it's only through the power of God that we're able to do something like that. But that's what that's God is saying. We have a responsibility to love them as we love ourselves and as he loves them. So what are some practical steps? Let's get this down to brass tacks and talk about practical steps of how we can respond as a church and as a community. First of all, we don't make pro- we're not going to make moral proclamations. We're going to make gospel invitations. Let's not start off with a lecture on morality. Because here's the deal. We have to understand that in this day and age, we are in a post-Christian society. The days of the moral majority are over. That we are in a different time, in a different era, and if we don't adapt, then we will become irrelevant and insufficient. We have to understand we don't lead off with our moral judgment because, first of all, why are we expecting unbelievers to behave like believers? 
And I'm not saying that we don't stand, we don't make necessarily moral stands and address moral code. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that our first and foremost priority is to make the gospel relevant and to make the gospel accessible to them in every shape and form, in every way possible. And it begins with relationship. That we need to pray for wisdom and insight. We can't engage in this without the help of the Holy Spirit, giving us a word of knowledge, giving us some kind of spirit-filled or spirit-led direction in that person's life and in where they're going and who they are in every way, shape, and form that God may want to minister to them, that we need to have the ability to engage the Holy Spirit to know how to effectively minister. So we pray for that wisdom and insight, and then we keep Jesus at the center, because this will help us to frame our conversation, rather than saying, you're sexually broken and you need to be like us, to we're all sinners and we equally need Jesus. The phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, stop it. Don't use it, because here's why. First of all, I, I, I don't know, it just feels to me, it's just so condescending, I mean, it's just so like, oh, I love you, sinner. I'm praying for you. <laughs> Ooh. It, it just feels so condescending. And then two, if they've assumed a gay identity, and that's everything that they are, when you say that I hate that part about you, they're not able to distinguish the fact that you're, they're not able to distinguish saying that you hate them as well. Because that is who they are. And we say, I hate that. I can't separate that. That is who I am. Clichés and bumper sticker theology never get us anywhere. We have to be willing to know what we believe and to talk about it in a way that's going to be through relationship and make it accessible to everyone. So we keep Jesus at the center and then we be the church. We build relationships with gay friends. We invite them to our life that they may hear the gospel. If you have gay neighbors or gay co-workers, invite them to your house for dinner. Well, wait a minute. No, I have kids. I can't do that. Okay. Have you watched the news? Have you listened to them talk about what they're dealing with in high school? Well, somebody just told me last week or so that said, yeah, a kindergarten, five-year-old came home. Uh, my five-year-old came home and said that, um, you know what, Mommy, I learned today, I learned that you can be a man or a woman no matter what you want, just as long as you take the right hormones. That's been talked about in kindergarten. So what we do is that as a church is that we go into the cocoon and we isolate and we say, we're going to keep this away. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in protecting the innocence of children. I don't believe in exposing anybody to anything that they cannot comprehend or process or deal with before their time. Absolutely. However, we go to an extreme where we just shield people away and then they go to college and this is what tends to happen. High school, I don't think it's the biggest threat. I think college is the biggest challenge because they go away to college. You've got professors, you've got other people, people from all over the world, different cultures, challenging your way of thinking, and they've had no exposure to know how to wrestle with it and to deal with it and see it processed right till they cave in and they just go with the herd. So it's your opportunity to invite someone over and to have that conversation, to have that experience, so that you're framing the conversation. Because if you don't frame the conversation, somebody else will. And so as parents, you have a responsibility 
to go, this is prevalent. This is in our society today. I can't ignore it. And it's not my preference that I would have to talk about these issues with my 8-year-old or my 10-year-old or my 15-year-old, but I have to because I want them to know that this is what we believe, this is what the Word says, but this is how we're going to walk it out. As a, We're going to walk it out in grace and in truth, and we're going to represent Christ to the best of our ability. That's where we have to get that we have to be the church. And are we going to be a church where the gay-identified person feels accepted and comfortable? Well, if we say, you know what, God, please send us those that are struggling and dealing with that. Please send them to our house. What happens if they come in? Well, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, where are we going to put them? <laughs> well, next to the adulterers, the fornicators, the gossipers, the liars. The... There's plenty of room. Big family. They should feel very comfortable. But people still think about that. Just heard some people in the context of teaching that this morning. They were just like, oh, I can't believe you're t-. I'm sorry if it offends you. I'm sorry, but this is what we believe and this is what we're going to stand for as a church. And we're going to live up to our name. We're going to live up to the name of grace. But we're not going to compromise on what truth is, but the world needs a lot more grace. <clears throat> you know, even to the issue, and I want to tread carefully, but even to the issue regarding the whole transgender issue, what happens if someone walks in? How do we receive them? I dealt with that in my church in Nashville, where a young uh, man came forward and said, hey, I want to, I need some help, and this is where I'm at, and I just kind of I'm trying to find God and, you know, but this is what happened. You know, I was a woman. I went full reassignment to uh, a man. So it was only me and one other pastor that knew about it. And we said, you know what, we're going to cover this and we're going to protect it and they're going to integrate within the body. Um, And quite frankly, it's nobody else's business because I want them to discover Jesus. And I want them to experience Christ. And we're going to start from there. Now, another, another, another person named is Joseph. Uh, that uh, he had uh, many, many years ago, was a man, had full reassignment to a woman, came to a point where he no longer could, you know, wasn't something that he wanted. He was struggling with his decision and his choices and got involved into a local church where they demonstrated grace. They spoke truth to him, but they were very long-suffering and patient with him. And over the course of 10 years or so, he wound up eventually having all of his, all of his um, surgery completely reversed and living back again as a man. These are ugly, messy stories. But the fact is that isn't this what the church is for and what it's about? Isn't this where God is supposed to demonstrate miraculous turnings like that? And I know it's a stretch. I know it's a, it's a tremendous stretch for some of us here. But the thing is that we need to be stretched because this is the world that we live in today. And this is where God has is, is called us and he's called us such a time as this. We need to prepare for their questions. Why do you believe some verses in the Old Testament ignore others? Why, do you make, uh, why did God make me gay if he condemns it as a sin? Why is it wrong for two loving people to be in a committed relationship? And do I have to become straight to be a Christian? Now I want to park on that for a second. The thing that we love to do is that when somebody comes in that, oh, you're dealing with that? Well, let's get you fixed really quick, all right? Let's go over here and pray and wave the magic wand. Oh, you're nice and tidy. Go and walk with Jesus. And 
that comes with the context of their sexuality as well. Here's the deal. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. Okay? The opposite of heterosexuality is not homosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. That means that regardless of how they feel, regardless if that orientation changes or not, do I believe that God has the power to do so? Absolutely, I believe that God has the power to do so. Do I believe that it happens for everyone? No, I do not. Just as though that God doesn't necessarily heal everyone in the way that someone might want to be healed or whatever that may be. There is not just a complete sweet blanket on any of these issues. And so for this, we have to make room for that. So what if the person that comes in that would say that, um, you know what, I have come to the Lord, I'm walking with him, I'm choosing to live a godly celibate life for as long as God would call me to do so, even if it's till the end, and I'm going to follow him all my days, but yet my orientation has not changed. (coughs) Will we have a special section for them in the church? Or will we allow them the same opportunities as provided everyone? I have a friend, uh, Christopher Ewan, who is an assistant professor at the Moody Bible Institute, who um, speaks on AIDS and HIV issues. He himself is HIV positive. And uh, also he would say that his orientation has not changed. Yet, if I sit and have coffee with him across the table, there are times that I kind of go, oh, wow, am I even saved? that I have no doubt of what his relationship is, that he's following Jesus. There are people in this room that are single, older singles and such, that want to be married, but it hasn't happened, and hopefully it will be happened if that's the desire of your heart, but I can't necessarily provide a guarantee. But the fact is, is that you're called to live to the same sexual uh, ethic as all believers are called to live to. That you have to resist the temptation as well. So it's... <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Everyone is called to live to the same sexual ethic, regardless of what you deal with and what you struggle with. Questions like, why didn't Jesus say anything about homosexuality, or can I become a gay Christian? What we want to do here this morning is that we want to resource you and to answer those questions I just listed out. There's this book called, Is God Anti-Gay? It's written by um, Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is at St. Mary's Church in the UK. He's an associate pastor there. He's written this book, addresses this issue, and talks on it. And yet he would say that his orientation has not changed either. But yet he's serving within the local church. He's serving the community. And he's choosing to live a life as God's called him to. So as you're leaving today, in the back there are going to be baskets at the doors. And they're going to be filled with these books. And these are free. And we want to make them available to everyone. But we're asking that you do this. Please only take one per family because we want to make sure that everybody has one. But pick this up, and this will give you a great resource to answer some of these questions because we want you to be equipped, and we want you to answer in a way to which is godly and also represents Christ well. And then finally, we take the long view. This is not something that is going to be fixed overnight. This is something that's going to be messy. It's going to involve being long-suffering. It's going to be involve uh, being gracious with them. And as long as they're taking steps, it's not, you know, if they're even micro baby steps, as long as they're taking steps toward Jesus, we want to encourage that and walk along with them for however long it takes. That we have to have a long road and a long view with this. That people are not projects, but we must be committed to having patience as the Holy Spirit does His work.
So what I want us to do this morning is that every Sunday we want to make an opportunity available for those that need prayer to come forward and have prayer. And so as when I start praying, ministry teams, if you've been assigned and uh, that your responsibility this morning, I want you to come forward and be available for prayer after the service for those that need it. But what I want us to do, as I said before, is that as a church, as Grace Covenant, that we're going to talk about this issue with grace and love, and that we're going to represent Jesus well, that we're going to lay, leave behind the rhetoric and the tone that does nothing to help us and does nothing to help the cause of Christ. We're going to lay aside our, our commitment to communicating political agendas rather than the heart of Christ. That is our responsibility, is to communicate and represent and, and demonstrate the love of Christ. Let's leave all this other stuff behind. And if you've been someone that's been harsh and judgmental and talked in anything less than a gracious way, then repent and turn around and look at it differently. And now you know how you should talk about it and how you should be gracious with it. Remember that there are always people on the other side of any issue. And we have to look beyond and see the heart of the people involved. So I want us to commit together as a church and surrender this morning that we're going to be the place that God, I know that God would call us to be in regards specifically to this issue this morning. That would be a safe place and it would be a place of restoration and healing and hope for anybody that would walk in our doors. Amen. So Father, we thank you. We give you praise and glory. And God, we just ask that you would, God, entrust us with those that are dealing and struggling, that those are that are... Um, God, that are just broken and are in desperate need of you. Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts so that we may be a beacon of light and that we would demonstrate your love to the LGBT community. That, Father, that while we would demonstrate grace, we'd also lovingly communicate truth. But, Father, that we would be a place of refuge and hope and restoration. I pray that you would show each and every person in this room where we need to repent and where we need to correct uh, our ways in, on some of these topics. Wherever we have missed the mark, Lord, I pray that, God, you would forgive us and help us to bring restoration where we can. But, Father, we ask, God, that you would bring us the lost, you would bring us the broken, you would bring us the disenfranchised, and, Lord, that you would bring us those that are in desperate need of you so that we may demonstrate your heart and your love, as I know that you believe that we can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.